The Soul of Shame, spoken by Pastor Peter on. We, we begin Advent today. Today's the beginning of the Advent season, meaning preparing us for the birth of Jesus Christ, preparing us actually for Christmas Day. And so hopefully this is a time for a lot of you where it's exciting, you're happy to be here, and I know a lot of you are here today because you've heard from the grapevine that we have 450 pounds of turkey that's waiting for you to devour today directly after this service. So I will do my best to finish on time so that we can all come together and fellowship. All right, I don't know about that amen there, but okay. Feel free to keep saying amen. All right, it's okay. But, uh, you know, this is an exciting time for a lot of us, isn't it? We're going to spend some good time with our family this coming Thursday. A lot of you get up at the wee hours of the morning on a Friday for Black Friday. You do your shopping. It's pretty festive, isn't it? So getting up at 4 or 5 in the morning and going over to those stores and waiting in line and trying to buy those Christmas gifts for your loved ones. And there is this part of the season where this response of receiving and giving, it just really creates this mood of thanksgiving and joyfulness, and it can be very festive. But a study that came out this week uh, have shown that 45% of Americans dread this season. 45%. A little bit higher with men. 50% of men today say they dread this season. Interesting, isn't it, that about half of us in this room today actually dread the holiday season. I wonder why. Why, why do we dread a season like this when it should be such a time of joy and happiness? I think a lot of times because it's a reminder of how lonely we really are. Maybe it might be a sharp reminder that there might be something wrong with us because we don't have people to celebrate with. And it's a hard reminder of that for a lot of us. And so we don't go into the season very happy. Uh, we're struggling. Some of us might, uh, the holiday season is an awful time to remember because uh, you might have lost a loved one during this time. And that's really hard as well. And for a lot of us, it's a reminder if we're struggling with the season of kind of how love depraved or love deficient we are in our lives. And a season like this doesn't bring any joyful mood, but rather what it does is that it brings sort of a spirit of hostility, a sense of unrest sense of anger when we see people happy and smiling during this season because we can't do that for ourselves. This season can also be very difficult for a lot of you because you got to get together with family members that you don't like. You have to get together, eat with them. I mean, no matter what, you just have to connect with them. And it's hard for you to do that. And I get it. I totally, totally get it. Uh, this past Thursday, uh, my mother and I, we remembered uh, the four-year anniversary of my father's passing. He passed away on the 21st of November, and when he first passed away, it was really a surreal kind of a thing, because three days later, we wanted to do the funeral before Thanksgiving, and so three days later, we, we held the funeral, and then two days later, it was Thanksgiving. And I made sure I took my mom with me. I didn't want to leave her alone at the house by herself because she was really struggling with this. And uh, we went to my sister-in-law's house for Thanksgiving. The whole family got together. It was a time of festivities. I mean, people were laughing. They were having a great time, eating turkey. And we were at this party, and, and it was hard. But we did our best to smile. We did our best to try to be in a cheery mood. Uh, it was really difficult for us, though, to really do that. Uh, because we were anything but happy. We were anything but festive during that time. It was really sad because we just lost somebody that we did really love. And it was not easy for us, really it wasn't. And uh, I knew that if we wanted to, and we wanted to kind of express our sadness and our grief, uh, my in-laws and my sister-in-law and, and my wife's side of the family, they're just incredible people. They would have given us permission and the space, I think, to do that. 
but we didn't feel like we had the space to do that. And when I thought about it, the reason why I didn't give myself permission to sort of be myself or be who I really am was because of shame. I actually believe that I didn't have a right to do that and to bring everyone else down, that my life wasn't as valuable enough or, or good enough where I could actually have the freedom to do that and bring everyone else down. And as a result of that, what I've learned is that I've learned that shame has such a, an, a, an amazing way of making me do things that I never really thought about. In fact, what I've learned over the years now, and especially up until recently, I've learned that I feel shame so much sooner than I can really identify shame. And so back in July, I, I started to see how much shame really governed my life. And uh, I decided to fast, you, some of you know, I decided to fast for 40 days in July, uh, in August and September, because I really wanted to have some victory over this, because I realized that it had completely governed my life in the past, and it continues to rear its ugly head today, even in my own life. And so one of the major reasons why I did fast was that there would be a spiritual breakthrough so that God would give me some victory over the shame that I've struggled with my entire life. I think there's a lot of you here in this room that perhaps maybe you've been struggling with shame a lot longer than you were willing to admit. In fact, we feel it so much sooner than we actually can identify that it is shame that we're experiencing. Over the next few weeks, we're going to focus on this series called The Soul of Shame, and it's really based upon Kurt Thompson's book uh, called The Soul of Shame. I do want to encourage you, if you want to go deeper into this topic, to grab that book. He's a psychiatrist. He's a Christian as well, and he goes so deep into sort of uncovering deeply, even medically, how shame can really impact us at a, at a very bad level. So for the next uh, several weeks, we're going to focus on topics like the shame of loneliness, we're going to focus on topics like the shame of failure, the shame of our family. If you have family secrets that your parents have told you, don't you ever tell anyone this stuff. Uh, you're living in unfortunate, deep shame. The shame that allows us to refuse to forgive people who've wronged us. And you may not even know, but if you struggle to forgive people who've hurt you, it's probably because shame is grabbing onto you in a very unhealthy way. Uh, shame of ambition. Many of you might be successful today. Do you know that the most successful people are probably the ones who are living in the greatest shame? It's really odd, isn't it? If you're successful and wealthy today, maybe not you, I don't know, if you might be the exception, but the majority of successful people today are living in deep shame. They work so hard, they try to be successful. Why? Because they need to silence the voices they keep hearing in their head, maybe from when they were a little child, that they're a loser, that they're not good enough that they'll never succeed in life. And so as a result of it, they have to continue to succeed to silence those voices that they hear. We're going to talk about the shame of ambition a bit as well. Shame in its definition, Robert Karen gave the best definition of shame in the Atlantic Monthly in February of 92. This is his definition of shame, and I highly encourage you guys to try to internalize this because this is exactly what shame is. It's the pathological belief that one is at the core a deformed being fundamentally unlovable and unworthy of membership in the human community. It is the self regarding the self with the withering and unforgiving eye of contempt. I want to read that one more time because it's worth reading so that you can digest this a little bit. Shame is the pathological belief that one is at the core of a deformed being, fundamentally unlovable, unworthy of membership in human community. It is the self regarding the self with the withering and unforgiving eye of contempt. Shame tells me that I'm not enough. 
Shame reminds me that there's something wrong with me, that I am lesser than other people. Shame keeps telling me, no matter how hard I try not to hear it, that I don't really matter. That my feelings don't really matter. That's what shame does. Guilt tells me that I made a mistake. Shame tells me I am the mistake. That's the difference. We all struggle with shame, and I'm willing to bet that a lot of us aren't even aware of how much shame has captivated and controlled our lives. We feel it so much quicker than we can actually identify. Now, so shame is not necessarily about you feeling humiliated, because I think that's how we naturally think what shame is. I think we can feel humiliated a bit, but really what shame is, it's really, and what we're going to be focusing on the next several weeks, is this emotion that there's something wrong with us that completely leaves us powerless to change a circumstance in our life that is conflicted and hard. That's what shame is, and that's what we're going to focus on, all right? Our emotions are extremely important. According to Kurt Thompson, he says that our emotions are literally the gasoline in our human tank. Basically, he concludes that if you and I don't embrace the emotional faculties that are at our disposal, we will cease to be human beings. We cannot move forward. Medically speaking, it is impossible. And that's how mental illness is formed. And so if I can just break it down for you, your brain has two spheres. You have the left side and the right side. The left side of your brain is the analytical side. It's the stuff that you know. It's the place where you retain a lot of important information. For example, if you have a leaky faucet, and some of you are gifted and you can fix leaky faucets, you're going to use what side of your brain to fix that? The left side, right? The left side of your brain retains all the inner information. It is the analytical side of your brain. Now, the right side of your brain is where all your emotions live. That's a key component to your brain. In order for somebody to be mentally healthy, both sides of the brain need to constantly be communicating with each other in order for somebody to have good mental health. Doctors say that when we experience shame, what happens is that it destroys the right side of your brain from engaging in some of the emotions that are needed, but more importantly, what begins to happen is that it shuts down communication with the right brain and the left brain. And when that communication is shut down, then it's no longer working in synergy, and as a result, what happens is mental illness. That's why there's depression. That's why there's bipolar disorder. That's why we're living in a time today where so many people are losing their mental health simply because shame has completely shut down their right side of its brain from communicating with the left. And as a result, we make terrible decisions. We do things that we regret. We end up hurting people we love the most. That is the power of shame. It's not just a normal emotion. It literally is the deepest, darkest evil that the devil uses to destroy our lives. And so in the next several weeks, we're gonna go deep into the soul of shame and look into this. And what I wanna do today is I wanna talk about the genesis of shame. How does it begin in our lives? How does it begin to grow? And how do we do battle with this so that we can have victory? Because nobody in this room is shame-free. Nobody. We all struggle with it at some levels. I hope and pray that this Christmas season will be a very different one for many of you. That it will be one filled with hope. It will be one filled with joy. It will be one where shame doesn't remind you that you're nothing, that you're a mistake, that you're lesser than, but rather that this Christmas season you would be able to have victory over your shame so that you would know that you are a wonderful, 
child of God, that you are beautifully and wonderfully made. Where does shame come from? And how do we have victory over it? We can't get there. We cannot know that we're beautifully and wonderfully made until we deal with our shame. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter three. We're gonna go to the very beginning of the Bible. I wanna look at the first 13 verses. Genesis chapter three, verses one through 13. Here's what it says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, you may eat fruit from the tree in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eye of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid him from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here, this is like a typical guy, the woman that you put here with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Hey, here's an insight. When you cannot take responsibility for your own actions and you constantly blame other people, you are living in deep shame. You get me on this? Spouses, if you keep blaming your spouse for everything wrong that's happening in your relationship, it's your spouse's fault, it's not yours, it always takes two to tangle, doesn't it? But if you always blame the other person and you have a way of flipping things around, you're living in deep shame. I know that because I'm a recovering blaming addict. All right, I do that with my wife all the time and she always says, it's still always my fault, Peter. I'm living in shame, all right? That's how, that's what Adam does. He starts blaming the woman for what happened. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And look at how she lives in her shame. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. She blamed then the serpent. This is the word of God. Let's bow our heads for a moment of prayer. God, we come to you today. This is not an easy word. And for a lot of us in this room, God, I know, I know they've been struggling a lifetime with this shame. I know it prevents them from being healthy. It prevents them from being even happy in life. Today, Lord, I pray through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would come and speak so deeply and so boldly to all of us. And I pray that you would help us, Lord, to have victory over this, for God, that we would know that we are beautifully and wonderfully made in your eyes. That we're not a mistake. That we should never see ourselves as lesser than and that we would know that we are worthy of people and community and we are worthy to be called a child of God. So God, I pray that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts in this room, I pray God that it would indeed be pleasing unto you and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. So what we see in this passage as we started off here in Genesis chapter 3 is that shame is not, again, one of those negative feelings. It really is not. Rather, shame engages evil at its most fundamental mode of operation. Shame engages evil in its deepest way. Shame is one of the primary weapons that the devil will use to destroy your life and my life. Shame is the primary weapon or the carrot that the enemy will dangle in us, in our lives, so that we 
we can begin to participate in a sinful lifestyle. How does he do it? Well, the scriptures tells us right here in this passage that the serpent is crafty. He's extremely crafty. That word in the Hebrew can literally be defined as the burning one or the bright one, which really means that no, there's nobody wiser on this earth in which God created than the serpent. He is the wisest of them all, and he uses that wisdom. He uses his smarts to actually allow us to be fooled so that we can begin to live in shame. And so what's happening here in this passage is that up until this point, you need to know before chapter three started, Eve and Adam had lived a life where they completely trusted in God. They had no reason to doubt him. They didn't. And here is how shame starts. This is the genesis of shame. The enemy goes to Eve and says what? Did God really say you couldn't eat from any tree? Right? God didn't say that. He, he's trying to place doubt in Eve's mind because God didn't tell Eve he, she, they couldn't eat of any tree. And Adam, no, God told them they can eat of every tree except for one. But the devil begins to use his craftiness to fool her and doubt begins to enter into her mind. And please understand when the devil is doing this to Eve, she, he's not doing this to provide Eve with more information. No, he's doing this to break her relationship of trust with God and with Adam. When you and I begin to doubt, which is the birthplace of shame, when we begin to doubt, what begins to happen is that shame will begin to feed that doubt to a point where you and I will begin to lose trust in God and in other people and also in ourselves. That's exactly what's happening to Eve in this passage. Doubt is an emotion that every single one of us struggles with. Now, not all doubt is shame-based. I think there's some levels of good doubt, like if you struggled, uh, you know, if, if you've sort of doubted God and maybe you're not a Christian and you've done some investigation, that doubt could have led you to come to know Jesus in a beautiful way. So some doubt can be good. If this, is, if this past week you've had a Big Mac Happy Meal three times, and maybe you doubt you should eat it today, maybe for dinner, that's probably a good doubt. You probably shouldn't be eating a Big Mac meal four times in a week. It's not good for you. So not all doubt is bad, but the doubt that we're talking about is the doubt in which the devil is instilling in Eve's heart and her mind. And when that kind of doubt happens, shame takes our doubt and creates a dark future. That's what it begins to do. Shame takes our doubt and it creates a dark future. Think about the things you're doubting today. Are you struggling today to see a bright future or do you feel like your future is dark? It's so hard sometimes to even be happy even when you are happy. It's so hard because you just feel because of the doubt that you live in all the time and because shame is so prevalent in your life that you can't even be happy when there's a happy occasion happening in your life because you feel like it's only a matter of time before you're gonna get sad again. It's so sad. You see, the doubt, when you and I begin to doubt, we, what begins to happen really is that we begin to see how inadequate we are on our own. We begin to see that we're not enough and that we have no ability to guarantee that we can uh, create a certain situation where we can determine its outcome. Those doubts often leave us feeling very powerless. And because we begin to doubt, then we begin to look for different ways in how we can try to satisfy that doubt. A lot of us, we doubt about the security of our jobs. I mean, maybe your, your company's going through, again, cuts, and it just seems like that happens all the time these days. People are getting laid off. And even though you have a job, you, you can't even go to work. 
being happy and, and, and thank God that you have a job because you're so afraid that you're going to lose it one day. Some of you doubt that your marriage is going to survive, let alone thrive, that your marriage is on the rocks right now. It's really struggling and, and you're hurt and you're struggling with that. Some of you doubt that, uh, that you're ever going to get married. You're getting older and, and it just has not happened and you feel like there's something maybe wrong with you. Maybe you're, maybe you're not attractive enough. Maybe something is going on. Why is it that nobody's showing interest in me and why am I still single? And you start to doubt that, don't you? And when that begins to happen, you start to feel like there's no way you can guarantee an outcome that you desire. And so you start taking matters into your own hands and you start doing things that later on you begin to regret. Some of us doubt about our children. We worry about our children that they're going to be able to engage within the complexities of life because life is so hard, isn't it? And we worry about our children. Will they have the proper abilities, the proper faculties to deal with the complexities of life? Some of us don't feel like we're smart enough. We're pretty enough. We're funny enough. And a lot of us here, we probably doubt that God really exists, let alone that God is actually for us. We don't believe that for real because we look at our life, we're like, how in the world can God be for us? And so doubt, the devil uses that doubt. It's the genesis of how our shame begins to grow. It starts with this sense of doubt and it destroys, this intention is to destroy your relationship with God and with the people that are close to you. And its intention is to destroy your relationship with yourself. When I met my wife in college, Jenny was the very first girlfriend I ever had. I went one for one, man. How awesome is that? I bet a thousand. I met her first girlfriend. We got married. Beautiful, isn't it? I wish it was that beautiful. It really wasn't. Uh, the reason why was because uh, when I first met her, um, I really doubted that she would stay with me. I believed within my heart that she was going to leave me one day for another man because I didn't believe that I was good enough for her. And I would tell her that many times. And when she was with me in school, I felt like I could keep an eye on her so I can kind of control that outcome. But you know, she's a year ahead of me, so she graduated before I did. And then she started working at Lucky Gold Star at LG, the electronics company. That place is filled with Korean dudes. And uh, guys who are smarter, better looking, more successful. I believed within my heart of hearts that she's going to meet another Korean dude and she's going to be like, I'm going to leave Peter. He's still in college. He got a lot of issues and I'm going to leave. And I believed it. I believed she was going to leave me so much so because we didn't have cell phones back then. We had beepers. Right? I'm dating myself, I know. And so I would beep her while she's at work all the time. And what I would beep her, like right before five o'clock, before she would get discharged from work, I would beep her, I love you. And you can do that numerically by typing in 173170071. I did it so much, I have it memorized. Just write it out. If you have a pen, 17 space 31701 space 1. Flip it around, it says, I love you. I love you. I, did, I, I sent that text every day at 5 o'clock because I wanted her to know that I loved her so that she wouldn't leave me for another man. That's why I did. I did that every day, right, at 5. And then at 10 o'clock, I beeped her to call me. Right? And if she didn't call me right away, my mind began to start to wonder what's going on. And if it, she didn't call back in 30 minutes, I literally was furious and fuming. I'd beep her back, A2, 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 hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. And by the time she would call me, I would be so angry at her. I would yell at her for not calling me back and I would be suspicious. And if she told me that she was home, she just had her beeper someplace else, she was taking a shower. I struggled to even believe her because why? I doubted that she wanted to be with me. You see, what was happening was is that my right brain, because it was so filled with shame, it completely shut down communication with my left side of the brain. And if 
if shame wasn't involved, you know what my right side, my left side of the brain would have told my right side? Dude, you keep doing this, she is going to break up with you. Yes. Your actions are leading, is going to lead to this breakup, but it, it wasn't communicating like that. My analytical side was completely not at play here. It was incapacitated because of the shame, and it was shutting down everything for my mind to function in a healthy way, and I thought she was going to cheat on me. And she told me years later, after we got married, she told me years later that she did go out sometimes with her friends, with some of her coworkers who were guys, but she never told me because she knew how crazy it would make me because I was a crazy man. <laughs> because of doubt. Because of doubt. Because I doubted I was good enough for her. I doubted that I was lesser than, and there were so many people who were greater than me and that she would want to leave me. And because of that, my right brain was not able to communicate with my left. And I've heard her, and I've said so many things to her. And I don't know about you, but uh, it's only by God's grace that she said yes. It really is. Thank God, because she did not marry a man. She married a little boy who struggled in steep, steep shame. And that's what Eve is starting to happen in her, in verse two, right? Because when the serpent asks her this question that starts to plant the seed of doubt, look at how she responds in verse 2. She says, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Her story is changing because that's not what God told Adam. You know, and Adam was sitting right next to her. Adam, I mean, some of you think Adam was just hanging out in the garden by himself, and this was just Eve and the, and the devil engaging in this conversation. No, Adam was right next to her. Adam was the one in which God told the rules of the garden. He had firsthand information on that, and he didn't speak up. He didn't say anything. Why? Why was Adam so quiet? We don't know, but you know what I conclude? His doubt was greater than Eve's. And that doubt was leading to his shame of silence as a result of it. And so he didn't say anything. He just kind of let it be. And so Eve, because she started doubting, she, her story began to be a bit misconstrued. It wasn't accurate. And that's what often happens, right? And so as a result of that, how does the devil enter? Look at verse 4. Look what the devil says. You're not going to die. The serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The devil then goes in for the kill. What does he do? He begins to tell her. He gives her this information, not to teach her that she can be more like God. You guys think she ate the fruit because she wanted to be more like God. That's not why. And that's not why the devil was trying to dangle that fruit in her eyes for her to eat it. No, that's not the reason why. Eve didn't eat this fruit because she wanted to be more like God, although I'd like to be more like God. I don't know about you. I want to be more like God. I want to be more like Jesus Christ. The reason why Eve eats this fruit is because her doubt gets so big, her shame begins to grow, and when the devil speaks to her, what she's understanding, what she's downloading in her right side of her brain is simply this. God doesn't want you to be like him, Eve. Eve, God doesn't want you to have what he has. He doesn't want you to be as close and as connected as you think he does, Eve. Therefore, Eve, guess what? You're not as important as you think you are. As it turns out, Eve, you're less than you think. Eve, you are not enough. Those were the voices of shame that was speaking in her right side of her brain, completely incapacitating her from actually connecting with her left side of the brain because Adam was there. She was there. She knew God. She communed with God. She could have said, no, 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 you're wrong. I know God. I've heard him. But at that point, her right side, her left side of the brain was not communicating with her right side. And as a result of it, Eve fell apart. 
She couldn't handle it. Why? Because shame had gotten so strong. It wasn't communicating properly with the other side of her brain. And she wasn't able to look at this objectively, but rather she was able to look at it through the lens of her shame. And this is what happens in verse 6. Look at what happens when we look at things through the lens of shame. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The fruit of this tree now becomes the source in how Eve and Adam can cope and deal with this emotional distress. It no longer becomes the tree they shouldn't eat because God told them they shouldn't, but right now it's becoming the tree where they can cope with the shame that they're living with. And what was a forbidden fruit now becomes the fruit that helps them to deal with their shame, but it doesn't help them to deal with their shame. In fact, what it does, it increases it, and as a result, what happens? Adam and Eve see themselves naked, and what do they do? They go grab fig leaves and they sew it to cover their loins. Why? Why? Because they were naked all this time. Why all of a sudden did they start to see, all of a sudden nakedness was a place of shame? because they were living in deep shame. They were looking at each other with the lens of shame. When you and I look at each other with the lens of shame, we see one another as judgmental, condescending, and we begin to doubt each other, and then we lose trust, and we don't feel safe anymore. Adam and Eve no longer felt safe anymore with one another, and that's why they had to cover themselves up. That's exactly what shame does. When shame is working in your life at full force, what begins to happen is that it begins to grow in its power, and as it goes in its power, you begin to get fearful, and you no longer think that people are actually going to love you, and people are going to come alongside and support you and help you in the ways that they want, that you want them to help you. You feel like they're going to judge you, be condescending, and never love you and accept you for who you are. That is exactly how shame works. And it started out with just a little doubt. With just a little doubt. And look at what happens in verse eight. I love it. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And therein lies the problem with shame. That when you and I are living in shame, what do we do? We go in hiding. That's our natural response to shame. We, be, we begin to live our life in isolation. They went to God and they hid. They should have gone to God and confided in him, but they, went to, they hid from him because they were afraid. They were naked and they were full of shame. That's exactly what happens when you and I... When you and I are struggling with shame, we go into this place of hiding, we get scared, and we don't want anyone to see us. We're so afraid that maybe somebody would see us for who we really are, that maybe they would never accept us. And so rather, you know how we go on living life? We think it's just okay to have social relationships. At least it's okay to go to the bar and have a drink with a friend and watch the Giants game. That's okay. At least it's okay to have some friends that we can maybe go on vacation with and just kind of be superficial at best with one another. And we're okay with that while we're still hiding. Some of you have friends, social friends, and you're still living in this place of isolation because you put this imposter in front of you and you put, a, you put this person in front that nobody really knows who the real you is, but you want them to meet this person. And as a result of it, you begin to become so unaware of your life, you become so unaware of the issues that you're struggling with today, and we need each other. Metro, we need each other to speak truth into our lives so that we can grow 
and be set free from shame today. Amen? Amen. When you get angry and you start blaming other people, my mother, she struggled with so much shame growing up. And whenever she would get angry, she would never take responsibility for that anger. She always blamed other people for her anger. And I get it. Because when you live in steep shame, you cannot take blame for being angry. You always end up blaming other people for being angry. And that's why we hide. And that's why we want to be sort of in this place where we don't want anyone to see us. Because it's better not to be seen than to actually be seen for who we really are. And that's a dangerous place for you and I to be. And so how can we free ourselves from this? How do we free ourselves as we sort of determine the genesis of our shame comes from the doubt? And I know all of us, we doubt at some levels. How do we free ourselves from it? It's really this one thing. Be vulnerable. Be vulnerable. Look at what happened before the fall in Genesis 2.25. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Before the devil entered the picture, Adam and Eve were both completely naked and they felt zero shame. That's what happened before they ate of the fruit. They were naked and felt no shame. And so if you and I ever wanna get up to a place where we conquer shame and we have no shame, we have to learn to be vulnerable because vulnerability is the place where you and I get naked so that we don't experience no shame. I wish there were another way in how we can overcome our shame, but there is no other way but then be completely and utterly vulnerable. Listen, vulnerability isn't something that you should just do once in a while. Vulnerability should be literally a part of your DNA. It needs to be a lifestyle that you and I choose to live out. Why? Because if we don't, shame will destroy us. Shame will destroy our marriage. Shame will destroy our relationships with our friends, relationship with our families. Shame will destroy everything good in our lives. That's why you and I choose to be vulnerable. Not because it's just the right thing to do, but if we don't, shame will destroy everything because it prevents your right brain from communicating with your left brain so that we can be mentally healthy. And that's why we fall into deep depression. That's why we struggle with bipolar disorder. That's why we struggle with so many different types of mental illnesses, anxiety disorders. Because shame controls us. Shame controls us. Listen, vulnerability, I know for a lot of you, you see that as like a, like a grenade. What? I'm not gonna be vulnerable. It's not a grenade. You know what vulnerability is? It's the fruit of God's grace for you to devour so that you could begin to live under the power of God. That's what vulnerability is. It's not a grenade. You, our culture tells us it's a grenade but it's not. And some of you are saying, yeah, but they ate the fruit, Peter. It's over. We can't do this. Yeah, we can because we have Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ came here 2,000 years ago, and how did he die for us? Where did he die for us? He died for us on a cross. Now, we, we look at the cross and we see it beautiful, but back in the first century, the cross was the most inhumane way to die. Only criminals were crucified on the cross. And you know why it was such an inhumane, it was a humiliating, humiliating way of dying? is because they crucified you completely naked. You didn't have any clothes on. I know for us, when we look at the pictures of Jesus on the cross, he's got a loincloth on. Of course they're gonna put a loincloth on him. You don't want Jesus to be completely exposed. That's kind of weird, isn't it? Right, so obviously the artist took some you know, liberty to put a loincloth on Jesus, but in the first century, Jesus was completely naked when he was crucified on the cross. Why? Because he was scorning shame. He was looking shame in the eye and he said, no longer will you be naked and full of shame. You're going to be naked and have no shame. Look what it says in Hebrews 12 too. 
Look at what it says. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus scorned shame. He declared that shame is no longer worthy in our lives, that shame is worthless. It has no commodity. It has no force to impact and destroy our lives. Because Jesus was crucified naked, he destroyed shame so that you and I could stand before one another completely naked and have no shame. Amen? So be vulnerable, be vulnerable, be open to it. Let it be a part of your DNA. What I love about this is that God still pursues Adam and Eve. He says in the garden, where are you? Now he's not trying to get information as to where they are. God knows where they are. But why is he asking that question? Because he wants to connect with them. He wants to connect with them. It's a means of him connecting with them. And that's what God is doing here because some of you think your shame is so great. The things that you've done that God doesn't even want you. You need to know just like what he did with Adam and Eve. He's saying, where are you? You have to be willing to come to him the way Adam and Eve did. God wants to connect. Think about this. God knows everything about us. He knows everything that we've done in the past, present, and even the future. And yet he still pursues us. He still wants to connect with us And he's asking you today, where are you on this Thanksgiving Sunday? Where are you? We need to be fully known, Metro. I know some of you fear of being alone, and so you'd rather just have some friends on the side that you can travel with, but you're still alone, you know that? You're alone until you're fully vulnerable with someone, and they know everything about you, because it's the only way you can be known by God. Listen, you are hiding from God when you're hiding from people. There's no way you can say, well, I'm not hiding from God because he knows everything. Uh, Yes, you are. You're like Adam and Eve. You're hiding in the bushes if nobody knows your story, your sins, and the things that you've done. 1 Corinthians 8, 2 and 3, Paul says something so beautiful. He says, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. It's a good warning. But whoever loves God is known by God. The only way our shame can be redeemed, the only way our shame has any hope is when we can be fully known by God. And Metro, you cannot be fully known by God if you continue to hide behind your secrets. You have to learn to be vulnerable. It has to become a lifestyle so that you can experience the wonderful grace and mercy of God. I want to encourage you this week, would you get together with somebody and uh, somebody that you trust? And would you begin to do a life confession? I know that seems extremely scary. I know it's hard for you to share things But think about it, if God's already forgiven you of it, why not share it? He's already forgiven you. And the reason why you need to share it, the reason why God wants you to do this, so that you can be naked and have no shame. So that you would know today that you are lovable. And a lot of you don't think you are. You don't think your life has been such where you can actually receive love from others, but you are definitely lovable. And God wants you to experience and encounter that love today but you gotta be willing to be vulnerable because if you don't, then shame begin to govern your life and destroy things in your life. It's more powerful than you've even given credit for. And the only way we can do battle with it is when we can actually be vulnerable. It's not easy, I know. But unfortunately, it's the only way where we can have victory over it, to be naked and have no shame. This past August, we, it was Sunita's two-year anniversary here at Metro Community Church. Pastor Sunita, isn't she wonderful? 
Yeah. Yeah, she's pretty awesome, isn't she? And, uh, you know, um, it's interesting because I still remember the, the sermon she preached at uh, on Martin Luther King Day at Ebenezer Baptist Church. Well, I know some of you were there. Any of you were there for that one? Man, she just tore the roof down. I mean, it was like the place shook. That's how powerful that message was. I mean, everyone was, my kids were there. and They were just like, oh my God, it was so powerful. I mean, it was really amazing. And I said, Sunita, you got to preach like that at our church. I know you were with like predominantly a black congregation, but come on, girl. You got to bring that on Sundays, right? But man, what a gifted communicator she is. You know, it's so funny because uh, you, when you walk with her on Palisades Avenue here in Englewood, it's amazing. People will, it's, 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 it's crazy because people will run out of the stores and say, hey, Sunita, how you doing? And she'll just turn around like, oh, how you doing? People will just start greeting her. And I'm just like, Sunita, you're like a celebrity in this town. You really are. It's really amazing. I said, you could run for mayor and be mayor of Englewood. Really, you can. Because you're so loved by so many people. She moved to Englewood when she was two years old from New York. She was a prodigy in this city. Politicians know her because they know her because she has such a sterling reputation in the city. In fact, uh, a couple years ago, we got together with uh, some of the council people. And even up until this year, we got together with some council people. And you know what they say to me? They look at me straight in the eye and they say, I would not be here today if you invited me. Me. They said, I'm only here because she invited me. And I love her and I have respect for this woman. Right? Yeah. <laughs> We would not be where we are today. We're negotiating with the city right now to, to give us uh, this Liberty School so that we can eventually build that into community centers and we'll use it on Sundays for church. Uh, the city would probably not even allow us to talk to them if it wasn't for Sunita. Really. That's the kind of authority she has in this city. You know, uh, it's funny because people keep coming up and telling me how great she is. They keep telling me how amazing she is. She's such a phenomenal preacher and speaker. And, and I remember in the beginning, it was just so great. And I was like, oh, yeah, of course she is. She's awesome. But after a while, it started to bug me. <laughs> it really did. People were coming, like, wow, she's, you know, you're the reason why I've come to Metro Community Church. And I'm like, oh, man, that's pretty harsh. <laughs> right, I'm standing right here. <laughs> say it like in private. Don't say it when I'm there. All right? That's kind of hurtful. People would be like, man, what a great communicator and all that stuff. And, and you know, she is, she's all of that and, and even more. I mean, really, she is. If you, what you see here, I think, is a fragment of what she really is. And if you get to see that, it's really amazing. Um, but, you know, I, I started to get, I started to feel threatened by her. I'm going to be honest with you. I have no pride and joy sharing this with you. I hate this process right now. I started to feel threatened by her. I started to doubt her. And it started to really take form when um, about last year, uh, she was invited to go speak at a church planting event with pastors. And I remember when they asked her to speak at that, I thought, why is she speaking at that? She didn't plant any church. I planted the church. I planted this church. Why are they asking her to go? And I started getting upset about that. And then while she was there speaking, I get emails from some of my friends who've planted churches in this area. Sunita is amazing. Oh my gosh. She is tearing the roof down. And of course, I responded with the emails and the text, well, praise the Lord. Yes, she is amazing. <laughs> I started to get into a real dark place. 
And uh, I went to this Pete Scazzaro's training thing. I was part of his mentoring group. And uh, one of the guys I never met, it was the first session, and, and he recognized me. And he just said, hey, you're Peter on, right? And I said, yeah. He said, well, oh, yeah. I was like, well, my name is Tyler. I'm from Brooklyn, pastor of church in Brooklyn. I just want you to know that uh, about a few months ago, I was actually at this church planning event. And, and one of your staff members, Sunita Ponton, she preached an amazing sermon. It still is with me today. And I wanted to say to him, you know what? Log on to a website and listen to one of my sermons. It's pretty amazing, too. I was like, I'm pretty amazing, too. You should give me a chance. I really am. You got to check it out once in a while. Give me a, give me, just take one listen, all right? I'm pretty amazing, too. But of course, I didn't say that. I just looked at him and I said, oh, yeah, she is. Yeah, she is. You don't understand what doubt begins to do to you. I start to feel less than. I start to think, do these people know that I'm the senior pastor of this church or not? Why are they asking her to do this and not me? Then this past early spring, she spoke at another church planners gathering. And my buddies from my denomination was a part of it. And buddies from all over the country came to this event that she spoke at. And my buddy Pat Starks, who's the associate superintendent for the Pacific Southwest Conference, a good friend of mine. He just, because I wasn't at the thing, and she, he texted me, and he said, I just want you to know, Sunita is awesome. She is just tearing this place apart. And I just thought to myself, and of course, you know, I said, yeah, yeah, she is. But I said, you know who else is awesome? The one who found her. The one who discovered her. He's awesome, too. And it got so dark and ugly. I, I, I'm going to be honest. I, I, uh, I didn't like what I was becoming. And as God started to speak to me this summer, I went to her in July. I knew I had to deal with the shame. And I sat with her and I said, Sunita, I need you to forgive me. And this is why I need you to forgive me. And I laid it all out before her. I said, I'm really struggling with this. And I'm so sorry because this impacted my relationship with you. And she goes, I didn't notice that. I'm like, you might have not noticed it, but trust me, I've noticed it. And then I asked her, I said, would you be willing to pray for me? Because I need you to pray for me right now because I need a lot of help in this area. And so she did. She laid hands and she prayed for me. And I was so grateful for that prayer. And afterwards, we just started talking. And I just said, you know, Sunita, I realized that you're the ministry that God has called you to is going to be far greater than what I could ever achieve simply because God is giving you opportunities to speak to pastors that are full of a room, a room that is filled with men. And it's so important that they hear from God to the voice of a woman, that they need to hear your voice. They need to know how to do ministry, effective ministry. They know how to engage deeply in their communities. They need to hear that from you. You have a much greater responsibility than I will ever have. And I'm so thankful for her that as we were talking through all of this, I said, I realize now what God is doing in your life. And I said to her, I said, you know, we have a quota at our church. We can't, every pastor on our staff can never miss four Sundays, more than four Sundays on a Sunday to go out and speak. Sunita usually fills that up by March. That's how often she gets asked to speak. And so I said to her, I said, hey, Sunita, just between you and me, I said, if you get a, a speaking engagement where you really want to speak at this thing, if it's gonna, and if you surpass your number four uh, Sunday missed here at Metro, I said, just let me know. I'll take care of it. But we'll just keep that between you and me. <laughs> She's got a special calling. And um, 
Guys, you, you don't know, um, Thursday, she's a part of my discipleship group and she shared her lifeline with our group on Thursday. And um, she's an angel. I don't think I have, I, I told her, I was like, I have a lot of friends that I respect, I know a lot of people. But I said, there's nobody on this earth that I respect more than you as a pastor. The stuff that you've done, the things that you've had to say no to so that you can live the life that God wants you to live. I said, I respect you so much. And I got in my car and I left and I was going home and I started to get emotional because I thought, man, if I, if I didn't deal with this shame, I might have fired her because I felt threatened by her. Now you might say, no, you're not going to do that, Peter. You guys cannot underestimate the power of shame what it will do, because it started to wreck me inside. And it created a dark night in my soul. And I just thank God, I said, God, she's an angel. You brought an angel to our church. Amen. And I would have messed it up if I didn't deal with this shame by being vulnerable to her. And now he wanted me to share this with you. I have no joy in doing this. I said, why can't I just keep this between Sunita and myself? Why do I gotta share this with everyone else? I'll just talk about my past sins when I was growing up as a kid. But God wanted me to, because if we're not gonna be vulnerable, we have no hope with the sin of shame that will end up destroying our lives. So God is calling out to you today and he's saying simply this, where are you? Will you respond to him? And will you be vulnerable and open your heart and share the deepest, darkest things you've done so that you can taste the fruit of grace in your life and know that you are deeply lovable by God and other people. Let's pray. The commitment God wants you to make today is this commitment to be vulnerable. That you will do whatever you can this week to sit with someone and share a life confession so that the grace of God could be lavished upon your life. And so that maybe it's been a long time since you felt like you were beautifully and wonderfully made. That God knit you in your mother's womb. He loves you dearly. He's calling out to all of you today, where are you? Go to him and respond and make a promise that you're gonna be vulnerable and share your deep, dark things that you've kept hidden for so long so that God can bring healing into your life and redeem those things as you become fully known to him and to others. I'm gonna just give you a moment to do that and I'm gonna pray for us. Lord, some of us in this room have felt shame in our mother's womb. Psychiatrists have said that we feel shame even in the womb of our mom's belly when we're living in there. If they regretted having us. God, some of us have even felt this emotion of shame even before we took our first breath in this world. 
And we continue to breathe it. We continue to live in it. And it's horrible. There's nothing good about this. And so God, I pray that every one of my brothers and sisters would hear your voice saying, where are you? And help them, God, to respond and say, here I am, God. I'm right here. Help them to be vulnerable, God. Not for vulnerability's sake, but so that they can have victory over their shame. So that their mourning can turn into dancing. So that their sorrow can be transformed to joy. Would you set us free from our shame today, God? Help us to make a commitment to you, to ourselves, to our families, to one another. To be vulnerable this week so that we can begin to have victory over this thing. And God, I pray that you would show the people that you've brought into our lives, and may we never see them as a burden. May we never see them as a curse. May we see them as a gift that they were intended to be in our lives. And shame has blocked our vision, and we see people as curses and as inconveniences in our life. Help us to see people the way you do. May shame no longer have its power over our lives, but we begin to see people as curses, but we see them as a gift. Even those who've hurt us, that we'll be able to see them as a gift because they're gonna force us to love the way you love. And so be with our church, Holy Spirit. Give us the courage to engage with you at this level. And may we not listen to the enemy. May we not listen to his craftiness, his wisdom. May we not be fooled by him. And may we run with you to this path of authenticity and vulnerability. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. There's some next steps that I really would love for you to take. For those in the, sanctu- in the gym sanctuary um, and even in the nursery, if you have your bulletin, just flip over your communication card. I'm committing my life to Jesus for the first time. If you've never done that, please check that off. We'd love uh, for you uh, to uh, take that step and come forward for prayer. We'd love to pray with you. There's a new believers table. Uh, I believe it's right here, right behind the sanctuary here today. Second, I will attend the entire Soul of Shame sermon series. This might be your first time at our church. Can I encourage you to attend the entire series? It ends at the last Sunday of this year. It's about six weeks. This might be the most important thing that you ever do in your life because shame has claimed your life. And each week we're gonna go deeper and talk about how we can be set free. And so I think you need to be here and invite others maybe who might be struggling with this, invite them to be a part of this series as well, all right? Uh, Third, I will do a life confession with someone this week. Please do that. Or maybe the fourth, if you're in a small group, I wrote up small group questions for this week and one of the questions is, share an area of your life where you struggle to be vulnerable in. Think about sharing that with your small group. And leaders, would you please make sure you keep everything at the highest level of confidentiality, all right? Um, And so, yeah, and the last one is just you're gonna invite somebody who struggles with shame to this church next Sunday. I, uh, this has been the hard, one of the hardest weeks. The last couple weeks have been one of the hardest weeks for me. I know that the enemy does not want this to happen because he doesn't want us to be set free from shame because this is how he keeps us down. And so I hope that you'll take this seriously and you'll begin to start this journey of being vulnerable.